One of the things a lot of people in our day use to argue against the Christian faith, and one of the, the more common arguments you hear from people as to why they won't be Christians, they reject the God of the Bible because they say that, well, you know, you believe the Bible teaches God is sovereign, that he rules over all, that he can do anything, um, that he's all-powerful, he's almighty, and that he could end sin and corruption and suffering any moment. And yeah, I believe God could end sin and suffering at any moment. Uh, and, and they say, well, God is sovereign. He has the power to do that. Why doesn't he? Why doesn't God do something about all the evil in the world? All the bad things that characterize this life. I mean, you just think about the bad things that you've run into in your life, let alone all around the world. Uh, this world is corrupted and filled with evil. And you're saying God is sovereign. Why doesn't he do something about that? And so there's actually people that think, well, that view of God is bad. And that's wrong. Well, part of my answer to that question is, why doesn't he do something about it? He will. He's made it very clear he's going to do something about that. Things are not going to continue as they are indefinitely without a response from the holy, all-powerful God. God doesn't answer to me. I don't know all of the whys and the whens. But as to why doesn't he do something, why doesn't he bring some justice? Well, God's made very clear he's going to bring justice. One of, the, one of the places you see continuity in the Old Testament and the New Testament is this fact of God bringing justice upon sin. He's going to do that. And, uh, and essentially, one of the, the pictures you see painted in the Old Testament is that there's coming a day of cataclysmic judgment upon all sin. And in the Old Testament, it's called the day of the Lord. So as we, we think tonight about the judgment of God, Let's start there in the Old Testament because it, it's helpful to see this. And this is just a, a, a selection of passages. There's a lot more that talk about the day of the Lord. But let's start in Isaiah 13. Isaiah chapter 13. And this becomes really common as you move into the prophetic books, the prophets. The, the prophets are preaching that God will bring judgment on his people if they don't repent, but then also judgment that will extend to the, the entire world. And that's why in books like Isaiah, Isaiah's discussions of God's judgment don't only dis describe Israel, but also the rest of the world, other nations. And this idea, again, of the judgment of God kind of finds its, its focus in the Old Testament with the idea of the day of the Lord, the day of the Lord. And it's almost like everybody knows there's a day of judgment coming, that everybody knows that there's going to be a time when uh, accounts will be settled, and there's a day of reckoning coming. And we see it as the judgment of God. Isaiah chapter 13, beginning in verse 6. Isaiah, Isaiah chapter 13, beginning in verse 6. Wail. For the day of the Lord is near. As destruction from the Almighty, it will come. Therefore, all hands will be feeble and every human heart will melt. They will be dismayed. Pangs and agony will seize them. They will be in anguish like a woman in labor. And they will look aghast at one another. 
their faces will be aflame. Behold, the day of the Lord comes, cruel, with wrath and fierce anger, to make the land a desolation and destroy its sinners from it. For the stars of the heavens and their constellations will not give their light. The sun will be dark at its rising and the moon will not shed its light. I will punish the world for its evil and the wicked for their iniquity. I will put an end to the pomp of the arrogant and lay low the pompous pride of the ruthless. Then if you go to the, the book of Ezekiel, so Isaiah, Jeremiah, Lamentations, Ezekiel chapter 30. Ezekiel chapter 30. Ezekiel 30, verses 1 through 3. Ezekiel 30, verse 1. The word of the Lord came to me. Son of man, prophesy and say, thus says the Lord God. Wail, alas for the day, for the day is near. The day of the Lord is near. It will be a day of clouds, a time of doom for the nations. A sword shall come upon Egypt, and anguish shall be in Cush. When the slain fall in Egypt, and her wealth is carried away, and her foundations are torn down. So the day of the Lord. Jo uh, go to Joel chapter 2. Joel chapter 2. So, Addie, I bet you learned your books of the Bible in order, didn't you? Yeah, so I never did as a kid. I'm still suffering. Like, when I come to these, these last 12 prophetic books, I'm always having to look through all of them because I did not memorize that as a kid. I, can't, I know where it's at in the Bible, but I don't know, like, the order of them. So, it's good these kids are ahead of where I was. I'm very excited for them. One of the things you see, just for clarity's sake, that is not easy to, to deal with or understand. Like the passage there in Isaiah and the passage in Ezekiel. In Isaiah, that's in the context of, of the judgment of God on Babylon. The one in Ezekiel seems to also reference Egypt, but it talks about it in the context of the day of the Lord. That, that in some of these Old Testament passages, it talks about judgment from God that will come upon them then, but it seems to have a fuller a fuller um, outlook that it's going to be more fully fulfilled in a day in the future. Uh, and that's why the New Testament picks up on this day of the Lord image and, and refers to it as when Christ will come, as, as I'll show you here in the New Testament. The day of the Lord idea is not just something in the Old Testament that's in the New. It's kind of like in Isaiah chapter 7 where it talks about the virgin conceiving. If you read Isaiah chapter 7, he's talking about something that's going to happen then. There was a miracle in that day and time of a virgin conceiving, but it's also going to come about when the Messiah comes. But that was a miracle. If you read Isaiah 7, it's a miracle fulfilled then, but it's also a miracle that's going to be fulfilled with the coming of Christ. A lot of these judgment passages in the Old Testament have to do with 
judgment upon the people then and how it's going to be catastrophic, but it has a, it's, it's anticipating a fuller, more full fulfillment, and we know that's going to happen at the return of Jesus Christ. Look at the Joel passage here. Again, the day of the Lord. Joel 2, beginning in verse 1. Blow a trumpet in Zion, sound an alarm on my holy mountain. Let all the inhabitants of the land tremble, for the day of the Lord is coming, it is near. A day of darkness and gloom, a day of clouds and thick darkness. Like blackness there is spread upon the mountains, a great and powerful people. Their like has never been seen before, nor will be again after them through the years of all generations. And then if you read the rest of the chapter, you'll see that... Um, the fact that this judgment is coming, that the day of the Lord is coming. If you look at verse 11, Joel chapter 2, verse 11, the Lord utters his voice before his army, for his camp is exceedingly great. He who executes his word is powerful. For the day of the Lord is great and very awesome. Who can endure it? Even now declares the Lord, return to me with all your heart. And you, you see this, this revelation of coming judgment as a reason why the people should repent. You should repent. You should turn to God because there's coming a day when doom is coming to the nations. Uh, let's go to the, the next book, Joel, Amos, chapter 5, verses eight, 18 to 20. Amos five, eighteen. This is where there seemed to be people in Israel who were taking the day of the Lord as God's judgment just on the nations, when again the judgment is going to come upon them as well. And that's what Amos seems to be addressing here. Look at what he says. Amos chapter 5, beginning in verse 18. Woe to you who desire the day of the Lord. Why would you have the day of the Lord? It is darkness and not light. As if a man fled from a lion and a bear met him. Or went into the house and leaned his hand against the wall and a serpent bit him. Is not the day of the Lord darkness and not light and gloom and no brightness in it? Okay, two more in the Old Testament. Uh, Obadiah, which is the next book after Amos. Obadiah 115. There's only one chapter in Obadiah. Obadiah 115. Obadiah 115, for the day of the Lord is near upon all the nations. As you have done, so shall it be done to you. Your deeds shall return on your own head. Then Zephaniah 1. Here we go. I don't know where Zephaniah is. I know he's in here somewhere. After Habakkuk. Zephaniah 1, 14 to 18. Zephaniah 1, 14. The great day of the Lord is near, near and hastening fast. The sound of the day of the Lord is bitter. The mighty man cries aloud there. A day of wrath is that day, a day of distress and anguish, a day of ruin and devastation, a day of darkness and gloom, a day of clouds and thick darkness, a day of trumpet blast and battle cry against the fortified cities and against the lofty battlements. I will bring distress on mankind so that they shall... Walk like the blind because 
They have sinned against the Lord. Their blood shall be poured out like dust and their flesh like dung. Neither their silver nor their gold shall be able to deliver them on the day of the wrath of the Lord. In the fire of his jealousy, all the earth shall be consumed. For a full and sudden end he will make of all the inhabitants of the earth. That sounds a lot like New Testament, doesn't it? A sudden end, a full and sudden end of all the inhabitants of the earth. It's coming. That's one of the things you see, like with so much prophecy, as you work through chronologically some of these prophets, more and more gets revealed about the day of the Lord. Like in Isaiah, you see it's a picture of judgment. As you work through, you see it's coming upon all mankind. And here you see it's going to be sudden destruction. Let's look at one more that's not on your sheet Malachi, the very last chapter of Malachi. This one's interesting because it's the last words of the Old Testament. And again, keep in mind the, uh, these other prophets have been preaching the word and writing the word of God, and God's people have heard about the day of the Lord. And the very last words in the Old Testament have to do with this. I mean, there's, this, there's been this message through the prophets about the coming day of the Lord. And so one of the questions is going to be, okay, well, what about that? You know, when's that going to happen? How do you prepare for it? You know, things like that. Well, look, look at how the Old Testament ends. In, in light of that, look at what it says at the very end of the Old Testament. Malachi 4, 5. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And he will turn the hearts of fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. And the Elijah prophecy there regards John the Baptist, one like Elijah, a prophet out in the wilderness. And the, the idea is before the day of the Lord comes, he's going to appear. And he did. And he did. All right. Well, let's turn to your sheet here. That's just to show you there is continuity about this idea of coming sudden judgment in the Old Testament called the day of the Lord with the idea of judgment laced all through the New Testament. I don't know how far we'll get through this. Um, you feel free to ask questions. Acts 17, 30, and 31. Incidentally, what I'm doing tonight, and I, and I don't know if we'll get through all this tonight, tonight is meant to be just an overview. Again, we're, we're looking at systematic theology. So we're systematically studying a doctrine and we're in the section of the end times. Part of studying the end times is the idea of judgment. The judgment is coming. And what does that look like? So tonight is, a, is like an overview of some of the things the Bible teaches about the coming judgment. And whenever we finish this study, we're going to zone in on 2 Peter chapter 3 and look more in depth at what Peter says about essentially the, the destruction by fire of this creation and the new heavens and the new earth and how that should affect our Christian life now. So tonight is an overview. Then when we finish the overview, we're going to have a, 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 a zeroing in on Second Peter and looking at what he says regarding the coming judgment. So that's, a, that's our plan. So this is intended just to be a, a broad kind of sweep through the New Testament now about what it teaches about this notion of the coming judgment, which is, a, which is a, a big idea all through your New Testament. Acts 17, 30, and 31. One of the interesting things about this is this is Paul preaching to total pagans. This is in Athens, 
at the Areopagus. The Areopagus is essentially like the Supreme Court of Athens. So Athens is, is at the heart of where the great philosophers debated and, and they shared ideas. And, and part of it is there's freedom for new ideas to be there, right? And the, the idea of the gospel to them is a new idea. So they're willing, they're willing to hear Paul, which is pretty cool. But Paul gets to stand before the Supreme Court of Athens, the, the greatest intellectuals in history, as some would think, and he proclaims the gospel to them. And it's in that context of talking to these total pagans that he talks about the judgment. So in Paul's preaching of the gospel, part of his calling people to repent is telling them why they need to repent. And one of the reasons people need to repent is this passage right here. Look at it, Acts 17, 30 and 31. The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed, and of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Now notice there, he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world. So the day of judgment is fixed. It's, it's not as if God doesn't know when it's going to happen or it's dependent on events here and how people do here. No, the day of judgment, the day of this cataclysm is fixed. It's set. And he's going to judge, notice, the world. It's a, it's a worldwide judgment in righteousness by man because Jesus is the, this instrument that brings judgment upon the world. And he's, he's given us assurance of this fact by raising Jesus from the dead. Uh, Revelation 20 is a picture of judgment. Then I saw a great white throne, and him who was seated on it from his presence, earth and sky fled away, and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and books were opened. Then another book was opened, which is the book of life, and the dead were judged by what was written in the books according to what they had done. And the sea gave up the dead who were in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them. And they were judged, each one of them, according to what they had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. Notice in this case, they're judged according to what they had done. You don't want to be judged according to what you've done. Because that is insufficient to make you right before God. That's, that's why you must be saved. You must be saved from God's wrath uh, through Jesus Christ, by Jesus Christ, through faith in him. So there's a judgment, and yes, it is binary. Those whose names are written in the book of life are saved. Those who are not were thrown into the lake of fire. Now that's the judgment of unbelievers, the judgment of unbelievers. There's also, and I wanted to include more on this because there's, there's more confusion on this. Christians are also judged, but not in the same way. That our judgment, as I hopefully can show you, our judgment is not a judgment on the condemnation, but rather a judgment of our works. How have we lived as a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ? Essentially, for the believer, for the Christian, salvation is, a, is that's not the issue. You're, you are one of God's people. You're born again. You're saved. But now the issue is, in the judgment of Christians, uh, let's test your works. How faithful have we been? Let me, let me show you that in Scripture. 1 Corinthians chapter 3. Keep in mind, writing to Christians. 
writing to a church. 1 Corinthians chapter 3, beginning in verse 10. According to the grace of God given to me, like a skilled master builder, I laid a foundation and someone else is building upon it. Let each one take care how he builds upon it. Now, see, that's the command of this passage. He's, he's telling the church, you better be careful how you build up on the foundation that I laid, which is the gospel. Be careful how you build. And now he's going to tell you why you be careful how you build. Verse 11. For no one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now, if anyone builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, or straw, each one's work will become manifest, for the day will disclose it, because it will be revealed by fire, and the fire will test what sort of work each one has done. If the work that anyone has built on the foundation survives, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, though he himself will be saved, but only as through fire. Verse 12, anyone builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, and straw. The idea there is that those are different types of materials. And look what it says, each one's work will become manifest, for the day will disclose it because it's revealed by fire. The fire will test what sort of work each one has done. Now, this is talking again about the judgment of Christians. The day, now, when he says the day will disclose it, where do you think he got this idea of the day? It's the day of the Lord. It's the day of judgment. It's the day of Jesus Christ. And notice it's going to be tested. Our works are going to be tested. If the work that anyone has built on the foundation survives, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss. And exactly what that looks like, I don't know. The issue is not salvation because he says, though he himself will be saved as only through fire. King James, I think, says the smell of smoke will be upon him. <laughs> King James uses this poetic language to describe it. But the idea is, as a believer, the foundation's been laid, Jesus Christ, but what sort of work are you building on that? And he uses this analogy of gold, silver, precious stones, which are not destroyed by fire, and wood, hay, and stubble, which are destroyed by fire. And those, those different sorts, those different types of building materials will be tested to see their quality. And if you build with the lasting sort of building material, you'll receive a ward. If you don't, you'll suffer loss, but you'll be saved. 2 Corinthians 5, 8 through 10 makes it, I think, even clearer that Christians will stand in a judgment or be judged by the Lord. Right, so it's not just this idea of you're saved, okay, and then that's it. No, you're saved to, to serve the Lord, encouraged to be zealous for good works. We're to be faithful as followers of Jesus Christ. And the Lord is, the Lord is going to test our work. Look at what 2 Corinthians 5 says, again, written to Christians. Yes, we. Now notice he says we. We are of good courage, and we would rather be away from the body and at home with the Lord so whether we are home or away, we make it our aim to please him. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. Now verse 10, for we, the we there is believers. We must all appear, that's all believers, before the judgment seat of Christ and, and again, this judgment isn't about you being condemned or you being thrown into the lake of fire. 
No, this is judgment is about so that each one may receive what is due for what he's done in the body, whether good or evil. So there's a judgment of believers. Just very clearly, Romans 14, 10 to 12, why do you pass judgment on your brother? So notice the context here is interactions within the church. Why do you pass judgment on your brother? Or say, why do you despise your brother? For we will all stand before the judgment seat of God. For as it is written, as I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me and every tongue shall confess to God. So then each of us will give an account of himself to God. Each of us, Paul included, every Christian. And again, that should affect the way we live. should affect the way we treat brothers. Now again, on your sheet, this is Christian judgment. It's not about condemnation. It's not about condemnation because our sins have been forgiven. This judgment is a judgment of testing. It's a judgment of giving rewards. Romans 8, 1, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. But what you find in Scripture is future reward as a motive to faithfully serve the Lord in life. Let's look at a couple examples of that. Colossians 3, 23 to 25. And now we're getting into how the coming judgment of Christians should affect the way you live, which, which really is one of the themes I want to try to get across as we're studying the end times is the, the study of the end times is intended to be practical. And, and this is where I think, I think the doctrine is, is misused by some, where essentially it just becomes kind of a discussion of facts, or a lot of times an argument of facts. Now, the, the doctrine of the end times is almost always in the New Testament practical, as we're going to see when we get to Second Peter and zero in on that passage. The intention there is so that you'll be holy in your life. So if you really believe these things about the coming judgment, if you really believe these things about Jesus testing our works, remember the point of that passage is be careful how you build on it. Be careful what sort of material you use because some materials will be burned up and some will be lasting under reward. So this doctrine is supposed to be practical. The idea of a judgment of believers should motivate us and stir us to be faithful. Look at Colossians 3, 23 to 25. Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ. For the wrongdoer will be paid back for the wrong he has done, and there is no partiality. Look at what Jesus says in Matthew 6, 19 to 21. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. And so part of the point of that teaching is, oh, I want to lay up treasures that are eternal, that aren't corrupted. Furthermore, the coming judgment of God is used as an encouragement to believers to endure suffering. Like, like I mentioned earlier in praying, when we, we prayed for Christians in Nigeria, where there's been numerous Christians killed just in the last few weeks, let alone the last year. 
The future judgment of God is a consolation to believers in their suffering. You understand that the early churches, many of them experienced persecution and suffering. Look at, look at what Paul the Apostle says to the Thessalonian church, which we know to have been persecuted. This is chapter 1. This is kind of how Paul's introducing his letter. 2 Thessalonians 1, 4 to 10. Therefore, we ourselves boast about you in the churches of God for your steadfastness and faith in all your persecutions and in the afflictions that you are enduring. This is evidence of the righteous judgment of God that you may be considered worthy of the kingdom of God for which you are also suffering since, indeed, God consider, considers it just to repay with affliction those who afflict you and to grant relief to you who are afflicted as well as to us when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels. Now, let me just stop there and show you verse 6. God considers it just to repay with affliction those who afflict you and to grant relief to us in verse 7. But notice when the relief to believers comes in the midst of suffering. Notice when the relief for us comes, when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven. So the affliction God brings upon persecutors here that he's talking about, and the relief for persecuted believers comes when the Lord returns. And that's why that's what we're looking forward to. That's why Peter says, uh, set your hope fully on the grace to be brought to you at the, the, the revelation of Jesus Christ. That we have hope in this coming of the Lord Jesus Christ for many reasons. One of which, he's going to grant relief to the afflicted. Notice what it says about his return. Verse 7. When the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. Now notice how that group is described. They don't know God and they do not obey the gospel. That's who the fiery judgment from Jesus Christ is coming upon. Verse 9, they will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might when he comes on that day to be glorified in his saints and to be marveled at among all who, are belie who have believed because our testimony to you was believed. God does this also in the book of Habakkuk uh, when God tells Habakkuk that the Babylonians are coming to judge Judah. And Israel and Jerusalem. The God is raising up the Babylonians to come as an instrument of judgment. And Habakkuk's dilemma is, my goodness, God, they're more wicked than we are. How can you use them to do this? I mean, what they're going to do is horrible and it's evil. How can you, do, how can, how can you use them, God? And God's response to Habakkuk is, oh, I'm going to judge them too. They're not going to get away with it. Don't worry. But Israel can't be allowed to continue in their disobedience and sin after I've warned them and told them over and over again. The Babylonians are a tool that I'm going to use to judge them, and then the Babylonians are going to get theirs as well. Over and over again, God makes it very clear. He brings judgment upon the wicked. That's why we need salvation through Jesus Christ. All right, so that's the judgment of believers. Now let's talk on the next page about hell. The next page about hell. Um, those who do not believe the gospel will be condemned to a place of eternal torment. One of the ways that that place is described is hell. Look at Mark 9, 
verses 43 to 48. And notice in this context, there's practical teaching here about how this should change your life. That's why people who talk about the end times, but it's not pressed on us how our life should be changed, it's not rightly handling the doctrine, I don't think. Look at what Jesus says here. Incidentally, when you discuss this theme of hell, a place of eternal torment, there's a lot in the teaching of Jesus about this. A lot. Uh, And so you see here a, a lot of quotations from the Lord Jesus Christ. Mark 9, beginning in verse 43. If your hand causes you to stumble, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life crippled than having your two hands to go into hell, into the unquenchable fire, where their worm does not die and their fire is not quenched. If your foot causes you to stumble, cut it off, or it is better for you to enter life lame than having your two feet and be cast into hell, where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. If your eye causes you to stumble, throw it out, for it is better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than having two eyes to be cast into hell where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. Now on our sheet there, you see that's like all caps. That's because that's a quotation from the Old Testament. I believe that's a quotation from Isaiah. But notice in verse 43, go into hell, into the unquenchable fire. And then he quotes this, where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. The reference to the worm is that of a grave worm. The picture of eternal death. Pretty vivid. Look down there at the end of verse 47. Be cast into hell where? Where? You use the word where when you're speaking of a place. The kitchen is where we cook dinner. This room is where the church meets for worship. Hell is described as a place of fire. It's a place of eternality. The worm does not die. And it is a place. And it is a place to be avoided at all costs, is the point of this passage. Because of how horrific it is. It is a a horrible, horrible place. Now, Matthew 25 is the description of the judgment of the sheep and the goats. Where the, 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 you know, the judgment is described in several ways in Scripture. One of the ways it's described, or at least in Matthew's gospel, is Jesus, the shepherd, the judge, separates the sheep from the goats. And look at the destinies of the two, the destinations of the two as well. Matthew 25, 41. Then he said to those on his left, depart from me, you cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. And then I believe this is the very last verse of the chapter, Matthew 25, 46. And these, that's the sheep, will go away. I'm sorry, this is the goats. And these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. I want to show you something about this verse that's very important. Because one of the things that it's become common in our day for people who are, call themselves Christians, I don't know if they're Christians or not, people who call themselves Christians deny, it's become popular to deny the eternal reality of hell. Uh, that's, that's common uh, and popular. Look at what Jesus says here. There's a contrast here. A contrast of eternal punishment, 
where the goats go and the righteous into eternal life. Now, these people who deny the eternality of hell would never deny, or they don't deny, the eternality of eternal life through Christ. But notice what Jesus does. He uses the exact same word to describe punishment. In fact, the place of punishment, they will go to eternal punishment, but the righteous to eternal life. The word eternal is there in both of these phrases. So if you're going to believe in a place of eternal life, in Jesus' teaching, he uses the exact same word to describe the place of punishment. It's eternal. It's eternal. And by the way, incidentally, it's not some like Bible study reason, what we would call an exegetical reason where you go to the text and from the scripture you're you're coming up, you're seeing from the Bible, from the Scripture, this idea that, oh, no, hell's not eternal. That's not where these people come up with this idea. Of course, they reject this because it, it's kind of like some doctrines. Uh, they're not hard to understand. They're just hard to swallow. It's not hard to understand when Jesus says, these will go away into eternal punishment. That's not hard to understand. That's just hard to swallow. People have always been denying the Bible because they think they're smarter or they think their way is better. And again, this is why Jesus, the Lord of the church, has demonstrated his power and his authority. And it's either you believe what he teaches or not. Luke 16. And he cried out and said, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus so that he may dip the tip of his finger in water and cool off my tongue, for I am in agony in this flame. Luke 16, 27 to 28. And he said, I beg of you, Father, that you may send him to my father's house, for I have five brothers in order that he may warn them so that they will not also come to this place of torment. Of course, that's Lazarus and the rich man. Agony in this flame, this place of torment. A couple things about this. Let's see how much time we got. There's good, there's good reason to believe that's a parable. I'm not sure. Uh, there's grammatical reasons to believe it's a parable because it's introduced the same way Luke introduces other parables. If it is a parable, it's not like any other. But even if it is a parable, which I, I tend to think it's not, but even if it is, parables contain with them references to things that are real. <laughs> okay? References to things that are real, like the parable of the soils. Seeds are real. Soil is real. Vines are real. The sun is real. Parables are explained and set in a, in a, in, with reference to real things. And, and the point I'm trying to make is, even if it's a parable, that doesn't mean that the flame doesn't exist, as some people like to say. They would say, well, this is just a parable, it's a story. I mean, this is just, for the analogy to work, it has to be based on something real. Does that make sense? So even if it is a parable, which I'm not really ready to concede, but even if it is, the place is still real. Incidentally, that parable or that, that account is not about hell anyway. It's about the sufficiency of Scripture because the conclusion of it is they have Moses and the prophets and let them hear them. 
They, if they don't believe Moses and the prophets, they won't believe even if somebody's raised from the dead, which they didn't. But in the context of that example, Jesus uses and gives a lot of details about what happens when the rich man dies. He goes to a place of conscious torment in flame. Why would, why would you make something up like that just for an example? That doesn't make sense, especially in light of the rest of Scripture. All right, let's look at Revelation 14, 9 through 13. I know this is a lot. Revelation 14, 9 through 13. Then another angel, a third one, followed them, saying with a loud voice, If anyone worships the beast in his image and receives a mark on his forehead or on his hand, he also will drink of the wine of the wrath of God, which is mixed in full strength in the cup of his anger, and he will be tormented with fire and brimstone in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. And the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever. They have no rest day and night, those who worship the beast in his image and whoever receives the mark of his name. Here is the perseverance of the saints who keep the commandments of God and their faith in Jesus. And I heard a voice from heaven saying, Right, blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Yes, says the Spirit, so that they may rest from their labors for their deeds follow them. Now these, in this case, who receive this mark, who follow the beast, these unbelievers... Regardless of what you believe about and how you interpret Revelation, these are not followers of Jesus. And look at what happens to them. And, and furthermore, look at how the place that they go to is described. And that's the point of why this is here. These details about the, the way the place is described are significant and they're not just arbitrary. They're tormented with fire and brimstone. The smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever. They have no rest. Let's, on the next page, let's look at Revelation 20 and verse 10. This is where the devil is condemned. And, and remember the Matthew 25 passage indicates that hell was created for the devil and his angels. Revelation 20 and verse 10, And the devil who deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and brimstone, where the beast and false prophet are also, and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. It's just the most sobering reality you could imagine. Um, just the most sobering reality there is um, hell. So let me stop there and, and see if I can answer if there's any questions, because the, the second Peter passage we're going to look at is there. And we'll talk about the new heavens and the new earth when we, when we discuss that, Lord willing. So judgment of unbelievers, judgment of Christians. There is a place of conscious torment and fire. Let me, let me say another word about, because one of the things that's become popular uh, in our day to deny is that there's fire in hell. Uh, and hell is described in a variety of ways, uh, like a place of darkness. Um, all of them are bad. Uh, eternal torment. Uh, but it, so my view is there are so many references to fire because it's very clear that fire is part of the torment of hell. I, mean, I just think that's clear. I mean, there's just so many references to, to punishment with fire. In fact, fire in the Old Testament is one of the common images of the judgment of God. 
If you study the Old Testament and study references to fire, you're going to see, you know, fire come down on false prophets. Uh, You're going to oftentimes see God, essentially his judgment comes through fire. And this is why when Jesus, or I think it's John the Baptist says, the one coming after me, he's going to baptize you with the Spirit and with fire. And, And that image of fire is an image of judgment. He goes on to say that the chaff will be consumed. So the, the image of baptizing you with fire is not like some thing that you want. It's not like some power from God as people interpret it as. That's a wrong interpretation. Fire is judgment. He's coming to baptize his followers with the Spirit, and he's going to baptize those who don't follow him with fire. And then you see that played out in the book of Revelation with all these descriptions of eternal fire in the judgment of God. But So, I mean, I, I think the evidence of the New Testament is strong that it's fire. And, and, you know, it's a good question. Okay, well, how can it be described as a place of darkness and also a place of flame? Well, in the same way that how, how in the world can a body, a physical body, burn forever? Well, it's obviously not our phys- like our physical bodies now because they would just be eaten up. They'd be destroyed. Incidentally, the answer to that is because they will be in a resurrected body that is able to be tormented forever. Uh, I I think that's the answer anyway. Um, My point is the eternal state is not a one-to-one comparison to, to what we experience here and now. How can there be fire and darkness? Well, it's not exact. It, the, the, the laws maybe of fire and darkness that govern our world won't be the exact same in hell. I don't know. Uh, but I think there's a lot of evidence that there's fire. Um, incidentally, one of the encouraging things to me, and, and I, I, hope, I, hope you, and I hope I don't give and I don't want to give and I don't want to have uh, any sense of levity in talking about hell because I do think it's the, the gravest reality there is. Um, the most serious reality that we, we wrestle with. Um, but uh, if you know George Miles, who's 100 years old, who joined our church a few years ago, uh, George is not able to get out of his house anymore. Um, but the reason he joined our church was because I preached a sermon on hell. And he was at a church where they didn't believe in hell. And he left that church for that reason and came here and just in the providence of God, while he was visiting our church, I, I don't, it must have been in Matthew somewhere, because Jesus talks a lot about hell. That's the reason he gave me for why he came here and why he joined our church, because Jesus says it. Jesus says it, and it's just, how do you get around the very clear words of the Son of God? I think all the arguments that try to get around it are just weak. Uh, again, it's just clear what Jesus says, I believe. So, all right, any last questions before we go? If you want to be reading 2 Peter chapter 3, uh, that's what we'll talk about in a couple weeks. Good to see you. Uh, Let me pray for us. Lord, we thank you for Jesus who saves us from the wrath to come. Help us to flee to him. Uh, Recognizing your judgment, God, help us to be sobered. Help us to be careful how we live. Help us, always make, help us, Lord, to make it our aim to please you, 
knowing that you'll that we'll give an account for the deeds done in the body, whether they're good or evil. God, help us to be about good works. Help us to be building on the foundation of Jesus Christ, the gospel, with a faithful life that obeys you. Help us to be motivated by the fact of the coming judgment and standing before you. Pray people in our church would be prepared for that day that we'd be sobered by this and ready to be living for you and zealous for good works in Jesus' name. Amen.